0: Welcome to Women on the Line, Community Radio's national women's current affairs program produced at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. I'm Erej Noor. On today's show, I play you a Women on the Line interview from 1992 with Lisa Belair by Ruth Barney. This interview is featured on 3CR's Indigenous History Project, Black Gold, which starts in the 1970s and goes right through to the present day, with a look at how Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander broadcasters at 3CR covered some incredible community events and significant political struggles. You can jump on 3cr.org.au slash blackgold for more information. This episode of Women on the Line references triggering and traumatic experiences and issues throughout. So please consider your health while listening in and contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 and Beyond Blue on 1300 224636 22 46
1: 36 if you need to. Just because, you know, you were adopted and fostered and you were brought up by white people and you know what, you might have gone to private school, you might have even had a pony. These are some of the stereotypes. and You might even learn to ski. That's another stereotype. Destiny says blacks don't ski. Okay. I put my hand up, but I was adopted, you know, and I'm starting to feel ashamed about that. But there's still that pain that, that you, you go through. I mean, nothing that all these material things cannot make up for the, the loss of not being brought up with your family. And when i met up with my, you know, some more of my relations, like I'm, you know, I've, got, I've got hundreds of relations, but I've got family right around Australia too. That's white family and that's my indigenous family, because there's some, you know, white people that look out for me, for me too uh i just cried i just couldn't deal with it i just looked looked around you know all this all this family and i just for that split second i know i shouldn't have but i couldn't help it i just kept thinking i missed out on this
2: lisa belair is one of the stolen generations of aboriginal children and today on women on the line she tells her story hello i'm ruth barney Lisa was one of the contributors to Breaking Through, Women, Work and Careers, edited by Jocelyn Scott. In Breaking Through, Lisa writes, Since the invasion, one in six Aboriginal children has been removed from their natural family. I was one of those victims. Because of the support and love of some close friends who are more like family, I can now call myself a survivor. Adopted as a baby by a white family in 1961, Lisa grew up not knowing that she was Aboriginal. Later, on the pretext of getting a better education, she was sent to boarding school. The real reason, says Lisa, is that she was being sexually abused by her adoptive father. Incredibly, Lisa has overcome these odds to speak out about and work for the rights of Indigenous people in Australia. As a teenager, Lisa says she was inspired by then-Senator Susan Ryan and her outspokenness on women, Aboriginals and education. She says, I told myself if I stuck at school, attended university, I would be able to work for Susan Ryan in Canberra. Today, Lisa works as the Aboriginal Liaison Officer at Melbourne University and broadcasts on 3CR and 3LO in Melbourne. She's been active in Aboriginal theatre and education and did a stint as a counsellor for Collingwood Council. This is Lisa's story.
1: My mum came down from the north coast of New South Wales, or probably 1960, right round about then, came down to Melbourne, um, to Carlton. Actually, she had a job at the uh, Postmaster General, uh, PMG as it used to be called, the old uh, yeah post office, uh, which was also very unusual for a Koori woman, well, a Koori person to actually have a, a government job back in those days. And she met my, my dad, I mean, the story's a bit hazy there, and at the time, uh, because she worked, I was in Berry Street Babies Home, East, East Melbourne, and uh, I guess some of the the listeners would be aware. Then, but you know, back in the 1960s, could have even been, be before then, uh, you actually paid to have your child minded in Berry Street, as opposed to its role now. But in addition to the payment, you signed a document which said that if payment fell in arrears by four weeks, then automatically you became a ward of the state. Now, what happened, my mum um, got really sick, she went home to Lismore in New South Wales, and again, you know, we've got to look at the big picture, and during the 1960s, OK, I was born in 1961, but preceding that, where um, the, the federal government and the state government had, a, had a, an official policy of, of assimilation, OK? Assimilation which spelt out uh, in, in quite detail uh, that Aboriginal people were to become Australian citizens. Here we are talking about assimilation, and we didn't even receive citizenship till 1967. I guess there's a bit of irony in there. So that uh, you had government instrumentalities, example for for the police that would go into to Aboriginal people's homes and and take children. You had the social work workers who played an active role, and you also had things uh, like with with my circumstances, how my mum got got sick. She went home, and when she was in hospital, of course she she didn't receive medical care with everybody else because she was a Koori, so she was treated uh, in the basement of, of the hospital and, uh, you know, re- I don't know the type of care that she she, she received. Uh, she wrote a will saying I was to go to my grandmother and... She died, but before she died, a letter got sent to her saying, well, this, this will isn't recognised because it wasn't signed by a Justice of the Peace. Uh, so, you know, and, and in order for me to go home, uh, need, we need two airfares and adequate winter clothing so that if, you know, my grandmother who was raising eight other children had money for two airfares, then there was adequate uh, winter clothing. And, you know, good question, Ruth, what does adequate winter clothing mean? So it's sort of like I look at the big picture. It's important to do that in order to to to, to try and make sense of what's gone on in this country. And years ago, like I couldn't even I couldn't even talk about what we're talking about. Like I I I, I do cry. Like sometimes I, I I'll, I'll be in my room or I'll be walking around the streets because I still don't drive it and have my have my Ray Bans on and. You just think about things that you don't necessarily think about you. The only time that I really consciously sort of think about you know, because you can't be thinking, well, gosh, what, what, what if we didn't have assimilation? You know, what if, what if white people didn't invade our country? You know, what if this was a a, a sexist-free, racist-free society? You know, what if? I mean, all I know is what what I've gone through. All I know is how I've reacted to that, how angry that that I have been in, in, in my life when I was younger. I didn't do things like slash myself. I didn't do things like some kuris would do and that's, you know, put acid on their skin to make themselves white. Or they'd get stilo wool and scrub their skin. You know, this is all... This is all stuff that, that's happened to Kooris, to Aboriginal people, to Torres Strait Islanders that have been, you know, taken away, fostered, adopted, put in orphanages. It was all, all supposed to make us good citizens of, of this country, you mm. know, um, you know one, one, one nation. And not everyone can, can, can speak out on, on, on these issues. And it's very painful for me, but it's something that I have an obligation to Australian society, you know, to at least say to people out there, look, please, listen, please try and understand. It's no good saying I wasn't here in 1788, but look around what's gone on in, in more recent history. Look what's gone gone on, you know, in the 1930s, the 1950s, the 1960s, and we're here in the 1990s. I think everyone wants to be proud of this country, but in order to be, to be proud of, of whatever it means to be Australian. We've got to acknowledge what's going on to the Indigenous community
2: in this country. Well, like you say, you, like so many other Aboriginal children, were taken away from your family and actually adopted out to a white family.
1: Yeah, and the thing with me, I I was um, told that I was Polynesian. And so, when I used to experience a lot of the racism at school, I mean, it's interesting, I mean, it, it'd be good to be like an outsider and say, well, that's a fascinating experience that, you know, case LB went through. Um, you know, she was Kuri but she was brought up that she was Polynesian, and, and, and what effect did that have on her psyche and her personal development? You know, oh, I can't stand that sort of approach. And I had to go through, like, I mean, when people would call me things like abo, Boon, Coon, when I'd get bashed up in the schoolyard for being black, like, I used to think, well, I'm Polynesian. Or I was I was told that I was Scottish. Well, you know, my adoptive parents, my adoptive father was Scottish and my adoptive mother was actually born in Waterford in Ireland. And uh, then there was me and I had an adoptive brother too which doesn't get mentioned in the story, so this is, you know, for you. And he was he was white, white Australian and, and four years older than me and I'd like to be in contact with him, but I've got to do some do some research there. So it wasn't until later on in life that I officially found out that I wasn't Polynesian. So I, I used to get given books and told that, you know, my grandmother was a Polynesian princess and get books on Hawaii. And at one stage, um, my adoptive parents were going to move to New Zealand because they said, well, you know, you're, you're Polynesian and so that means, you know, Maori. You
2: Did know. they actually know that you were a Corey? Well,
1: again, you know, I mean, people say that I'm too kind and I'm too generous. That's something that I I always want to maintain, regardless of wherever I end up. And I'm sure I've got enough aunties and uncles and cousins and friends and people like you that'll keep me on the track. You know, and just sort of say, look, Belair, remember who you are. When I got my file from community services, that was in 1986, that's Community Services of Victoria. Um, when Destiny, at Destiny Deacon that is, you know, you know we had discussions about, look, you've got to know who you are. And I mean, I knew that, but I was that scared because one of the things is I had, I had prejudices. I was racist, and I'll admit that, you know. So when I mix with, say, white people and they they, they feel uncomfortable about, you know, racism and, you know, how oh, can I understand Aboriginal people? Well, yeah. You know, how how can I ever understand an Indigenous person having racism towards other Indigenous people? Now I know about internalised uh, oppression and internalised racism. Now I mean, I and, and going to America really helped me understand what that that meant. But prior to that knowledge, I had I had to work through so much um, anger. I had to work through my fears because all I knew about. Kuri people in this country was what I read in the newspapers, what I saw on television, what I heard on the radio, if there was anything on on, on, on the radio. And predominantly, you know, it tended to be either a success story and usually a sporting success story. Uh, of course, I'm not saying anything. Against our finer athletes, uh, who I admire, many of them, or it would be the the Aboriginal problem, and there, you know, and there was me. I didn't mix with any any people that that everyone that I mixed with was was white. You know, I couldn't go home and talk about racism. I couldn't go home. Like I can't explain this. All I know is that when I just get bashed up because of people thinking that I was different, you know, and an Aboriginal person, I couldn't go home to my adoptive parents. I don't know why I couldn't go home and say, hey, I got. Thatched up because someone called me black. I protected myself and so I didn't see myself as as black.
0: On Community Radio Around Australia, you're listening to Women on the Line. Go to 3cr.org.au/slash Women on the Line to download this week's program. And don't forget, you can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter.
2: Lisa's file said she was either Chinese, Malay, or possibly Polynesian. She writes in Breaking Through. When I first had the courage to go to the Department of Community Services' Victoria Adoption Information Service with my friend Destiny, I was given my old file. Occasionally I'm capable of pulling it out from its hiding place. I go through it and still cannot believe that the file is about me, about my life. I can't even use my adoptive name. It makes me so very sad. I was made a ward of the state, then adopted into a white family. I tried to survive. It inspired me to fight for social justice and become keenly involved in the media.
1: As soon as I saw my filer, I knew the name because the Belair name is, is known throughout Australia and throughout the world, actually. It's just one of those names, like you could mention other names, Atkinson, for example, and people now, that's most likely going to be a curry person at the end of the uh, at the end of the microphone so you know Belair's one of those names and i'd seen my relations on tv before but i didn't know that they were
2: my relations all i knew is that they'd made an impact on me so was that a really painful journey for you to have to set about discovering your family
1: well like i said i i had a like a family down here like you know we're not talking about my doctor family but the Koori community down, down here in Victoria. I mean, like, because so many people have been gone through my experience that, uh, and they realise that not everyone, you know, can find their family. When some people will reach out for their family when they're when they're five, you know, because they get caught shops lifting, and then someone from the authorities goes in and says, "Well, you know, why is this person stealing?" And other people are too frightened. Like, I know people that are in their twenties, and I know people in their fifties that don't. That, that are just so scared of what they might find out or maybe they're ashamed or, 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 or whatever, but they've been accepted by people down here, you know, I mean ultimately I want everyone to come home, I want every Indigenous person um, you know, every black person you know, in this country to, to come home and um, to, to find their family, but it was very, very painful, I had a support base, it was that support base of, of um, Destiny Janina, Johnny um, Harding Alan or Harding that enabled me to have the strength which meant that I could go to community services. I mean, it wasn't an easy decision. I mean, we we fought. I mean, we literally grabbed each other and swore at one another, got physically violent towards one another, because I was resisting. Like, I knew what I had to do, but I I, I was terrified. Now, now, I've made that transition, and Destiny says to me, Uh, Lisa I guess you're ready to go through a lot of what you're going through now and that's true you know which goes back to uh, not thinking how life might have been you know I can't afford to do that because I have to think well okay so many things have gone on in my life what contribution can I make to society how can society benefit from this travesty
2: of justice but how can I also look after myself as well? And so how did your family feel when they did meet you? Because they, like your grandmother and mm. your uncles, they must have known that you were out there somewhere mm. but had no way of contacting you.
1: One of the... the uh, when we contacted community services, my auntie Kay and Uncle Bob had already written a letter to community services Victoria saying that, you know, if ever Lisa contacted the department, it used to be a social welfare department then, for them to you know, for me to contact them and then to contact them. And so with the adoption laws, uh, the the Victorian adoption information laws are the most, you know, progressive in Australia. And I say that as an Indigenous person, but someone that's used the the, the processes as well. And because I'd contacted them and there was this letter saying, please, if Lisa contacts, then we met up within five days but for sometimes people the wait could be two years or five years and my uncle uh, bob he's a barrister he was in court so he he he, said he ran out he rang you know like he got the message and then he left his case well i mean he went back to it but he just sort of come out when he had a break and 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 we talked then i went up to to sydney and met my grandmother because my account uncle bob you, you know they've dealt with lots of kids that have gone through what I've gone through before, even though they hadn't actually gone through this with their oldest, like I'm the oldest of, of, of um, 21st cousins, right? So it was sort of more, you know, more closer to home. And uh, so I stayed with them in, in North Bondi for a few days met my grandmother who was there. And she had the had a box of receipts. And if you recall, I mentioned that At Berry Street, you know, one of the clauses was if payment fell in arrears one month or more, well, my grandmother had kept up the payments. That made me sad.
2: It must have made you very angry as well.
1: Anger isn't something that that I'm conscious of. I know that I've got the capability of anger. but it isn't something that I go around seething and and being conscious of of, of my anger. I just felt this
2: society is... It's got to change. Mm -hmm. To me, it just sounds so... And this is probably an appropriate word to use, but just so unfair and so unjust. Well, that's how I feel, and that's...
1: Why when you're talking with with people because even though we're having this conversation and there's listeners that 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 hopefully are becoming a bit more sensitive to indigenous people, there's also other people that have gone through this experience who haven't made those steps, and it is very painful and you've got to have support and to me, I don't think there's enough support mechanisms you know out 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 there within. Uh, not only the Kuru community but the wider community to, to, you know to, to deal with it. it it can be very confrontational and there is a lot of anger and I see that anger in so many people Aboriginal people that have gone through what I've gone through you know and, and you think well what can what how can I how can I be of assistance you can't go around and, and, and hold you know a hundred thousand people but you can say to them well look Okay, there are some people that you can talk with. It's not satisfactory. I mean, I've got a goal. I've got a ten-year plan where I'd like to see a centre established where queries and non queries you know, can 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 be together and start dealing with what the stolen generations have gone gone through. I mean, okay, we've got an organisation called Linkup, but as someone that's gone through the process, as someone that, that that's 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 aware that. Aboriginal kids are still being taken away from their families. And the whole thing is, you know, when when I was born, we didn't have the Aboriginal organisations that exist today. We didn't have, like, the Victorian Aboriginal Childcare Agency or the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service. And yet, even though these community-based organisations exist, uh, you've got attitudes, say, for example, of of, of a hospital liaison officer, a hospital social worker, who who can look at, at somebody and say, well, you can pass as a white person, they might even, you know, look at you and say, "Oh, well, well, well Ruth, yeah, it's fine. You know, she's got a child; she can't look after it. We'll just, you know, take the child or child away and won't acknowledge her her heritage because they think, well, you know, she she doesn't look Aboriginal uh, anyway. The child will be better off away from her, from their from their people. Mm-hmm. Which, and then so you know, predictably, that in five years time, in twenty years time, you're going to have another." person like me sitting here with a person like you.
2: I want that to stop. I think that white people in Australia don't understand why it is so important for Aboriginals to embrace their heritage. right well and again
1: uh, we're on Aboriginal land here and I can bandy out uh, around a term called Terra nullius which means empty land so, Ruth and I aren't really having a conversation because I don't exist. Indigenous people don't exist in this country, and that is a lie. We have to have land rights, we have to have sovereignty, I don't want to go in and say, well, what does land rights mean to you? I can assure you that it doesn't mean that we're looking at somebody's house and they're having a barbecue on a Sunday and they're lounging around by their swimming pool and someone's polishing the Volvo and we'll say, okay, we'll put a land claim on that. I mean, the trivialisation of of land rights, again, to me, reflects uh, a lack of understanding of Indigenous people. And what does it mean? It's hard to explain because prior to the invasion, and I'll use that term, I won't be nice and say the settlement, because it wasn't a settlement. Uh, It is in the white history books, but it's not in our history books. Uh, There were over 700 individual nations here, 700 countries. And I'm looking at the television today and I'm looking and thinking, gee, what's going on in the world? All these wars, but the wars have never stopped. The only difference between the wars over in Europe is that they've been declared but here in this country there's an undeclared war and it's going on you know uh, but then i get excited too and, and some of the listeners you know might understand what i mean when because we've been here since you know a hundred least a hundred thousand years uh they used to be intertribal warfare and it's still going on I'm not saying that's a good thing, but I get a real buzz that I think, wow, you know, you can you can take us away from our family, you know, you can feed all this education stuff in our heads and, you know, you can be racist, you can bash us up, you can rape us, you know, you can, you know, sexually abuse our kids, you know, you can turn black people against black people, which is really bad, but, it it you know, that's all part of divide and conquer but there's some things that are constant, you know, and, and other constant things like having strong black women in a community that hold the community together and having some strong black men that watch over what we do that pull people aside and have a bit of a yarn and say, okay, nice weather we're having, but we think that, uh, you know, we better look at our behaviour and
2: behave in a responsible manner. Well, finally, Lisa... What is it like for you today as a woman and as a Koori living in Australia? Well, I love being
1: a woman, I love being an indigenous woman. I call myself an indigenous black feminist, of course we can talk for hours on that. Uh, It's a struggle at times, particularly if you make yourself A little bit vulnerable vulnerable in the sense that you know you I don't feel threatened by this interview but you know you might give a public lecture you know you might go to a um, community college and talk politics or have ideas or tell a few jokes and because racism and sexism does exist in this community I mean exist in Australian society but it also Sadly, for some uh, Indigenous people, you know, supposedly they they adopt the patriarchal system, then they can um, oppress Koori women. I'm proud of who I am and I'm strong and I'm going to be around for a long time and us women, you know, we're going to get together and we're going to sort things out. That's Indigenous women, but... You know, if we need to call on our um, other sisters, that's our non-Indigenous sisters. We'll be calling on you. Uh, just on that last last point, sometimes it's it's difficult, you know, because the overall struggle is is the liberation of Indigenous people, black people. But at the same time, when we are liberated, then the rest of society will be liberated. And until that happens, you know, I'm 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 gonna be around. I'm going to be a strong black woman with my other tis- sisters. We'll take time now,
0: time out every now and then,
1: but we're going to be around.
0: For more information about the Black Gold Project that this interview is currently featured on, jump on 3cr.org.au slash blackgold. And again, if you found the contents of this show triggering, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or Beyond Blue on 1 22 46 36 to speak to a professional. Women on the Line is Community Radio's national women's current affairs program. It's produced and presented by a range of women broadcasters from 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. We greatly appreciate the financial support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We welcome your comments or thoughts on today's show, so send us an email at womenontheline at gmail.com. Women on the Line programs can be downloaded from our website, 3cr.org.au slash womenontheline. The theme music for Women on the Line is slideshow at Free University by Le Tigre. Thank you for listening to Women on the Line. I'm Areej Noor and I hope you can tune in again next time.